Welcome to the Fitness and Color Podcast, where we follow and highlight the experiences of people of color in the wellness and fitness industry, telling their stories in their own words. But the same way you're trying to attract runners of color into uh, running, I'm trying to attract teachers of color. You know, I want, I want one day, I want a blickety black school, <laughs> you know, when black and brown kids doing hella black things. That's when I'm at my best, when I am interacting with students, when I'm interacting with adults of color, I can be me. Yeah. Right. And I think there's so much power in being me and not having that misinterpreted. I want to really change the game in that way. And there are people who've done it before. So it's just about researching what they've done, what's made them successful and doing it better. Hey, Gavin, welcome to the show. What's going on, Sid? How are you? I'm well, man. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us here. I appreciate your time. Of course. So I want to get to know who Gavin is. Like I've met you through the running scene over the years. And I know you went to, uh, to Northeastern with um, Jason, Jason Williams, who runs with us. Yes. And I've seen you, you know, on the internet here and there. And we've <laughs> obviously become more connected uh, this year. I know you're the assistant head of school or vice president or vice yes. principal rather at Fenway High School. That's correct. Um, and I know you are a great runner or you like to say was a great runner. <laughs> so used to be a really, really good runner. You're an ambassador for Lululemon. Correct. Uh, you work with Tracksmith in some capacity. Yes. You did a very, very dope video where you brought them to the hood and ran in Roxbury recently. Yes, took them to, from the hood to the neighborhood is what I said to them, man. It's, um, but I had to bring them to that experience to, to see like what it's like to be running a uh, day in the life of me. Uh, and I started at like six o'clock in the morning. They didn't love that, but <laughs> it is what it is. I love that, man. I really, I, there's a lot of things that I love about that, which part, the, the, one, the one I love the most about it, I think we've talked about it before, was you're not going to what they want to create, but they're coming to what your, your actual life is. Absolutely. You know, and you're not running in the, in, in the woods somewhere. You're running in Roxbury. Yes. Um, that, that was really important to me. You know, I don't run in the woods. Right. <laughs> I run in Roxbury every morning and uh, brings me life to, you know, I said, run by murals and run by famous people and famous things, uh, you know, just city landscapes that most people probably in Boston have never seen or really understand the intricacies of, um, and I would say the, the black power uh, that is Roxbury, you know, it was mm -hmm. the, the black Mecca of Boston. I think it's an honor to live there. Uh, and I just want everybody to experience that, you know, uh, I don't think enough people get to see the murals, the, the food places, you know, just the, the entire community and how beautiful it is. That's so dope because I feel like I don't even know that. And I'm from mm. Boston, born and raised. Absolutely. Um, but what I've learned recently, and not learned because I've known, but like what comes to realization is both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King at some point lived in Boston. Yep. And Boston was like headquarters for the anti-slavery movement. Yeah. You know? No, exactly. And, you know, I'm right by 12th Baptist Church where MLK was uh, off of El Haj Shabazz Street, right on Malcolm X Boulevard. Oh. Um, you know, and I don't even think the students that I teach often recognize the importance of that. Right. Like how epic that is uh, that you have that you're on Malcolm X Boulevard, like the Malcolm X Boulevard. 
uh, you know, and there are several other streets named after uh, him and uh, his journey in Boston, right? So, like, let's let's explore that. Let's understand that. Uh, let's understand the people in the mural. Let's understand, uh, you know, the great artwork that's going up. Pro Black has a mur mural right there. Um, Breathe Life, you know, just seeing things like that. Um, and I just want to really amplify all of those voices and, and all of that like rich blackness uh, so yeah that's awesome um so let's let's get to let's get to know gavin a little bit where uh, where are you from i was born in jamaica west indies actually oh wow yeah um moved here when i was five with my mother and uh, my stepfather and moved to a place called uniondale new york um, okay. maybe not initially but that's where life eventually took me and uh, I, I lived in Uniondale for, till I was about 17 years old. I okay. spent summers in Jamaica with my family, uh, going back home to see my grandmother, probably save my mother money, a bunch of money for <laughs> child care. Oh, yeah. uh, but you know, I was, I was from Uniondale, Uniondale That's, strong. Where is Uniondale? Like it's Uniondale's on Long Island, and it's a, it's really interesting because when I tell people I'm from Long Island, I think it always comes with like a, ooh, you're one of those, right? You're from Long Island. You're probably like uh, this bougie black kid, and Uniondale's the hood, like very much so. Oh, wow. uh, there's Uniondale, Hempstead, Roosevelt, and uh, we mostly immigrant uh, community, low middle class, lower lower class individuals, right, that were just trying to trying to make it. So for me, again, that was another space where everybody around me looked like me. Uh, my sister was writing her graduate her she's applying to PhD school and she was writing a report. She was talking about us going through metal detectors wow. and, you know, us thinking that the world was literally uh, the West Indies, uh, South America and Latin America. Right. Like that. That's all we thought. Everybody was from there. Right. Because yeah. that's where everybody was from in our community. Um, but then coming into a space like going to Northeastern and recognizing that. There are far more things out there than you you once realized uh, is quite the culture shock. Yeah. What's interesting is that like you grew up in an immigrant community in, you know, the inner city of New York, not New York City, but, you know, mm -hmm. Long Island. Um, you traveled to Jamaica a lot and still you were there was a culture shock. Like you traveled, like you left, you got on a plane and left the country. But there was still a culture shock when you went when you came to Boston, because mm -hmm. um, there are people who don't have that even experience of even traveling to get on an airplane, um, and so it's just interesting that you left the country and it's still the same for you. Well, I th I think for a lot of immigrant families, what what we do is we'll often go to our home countries, right? I've been to Jamaica more times than I can imagine, uh, but. To, to explore the world is something that I've, I've just recently started doing in my early 20s. Uh, and another piece was from 10th grade on, I went to a Catholic school. So I went from, you know, being in an all black um, biopoc, um, BIPOC uh, environment to being in an environment where it was all white kids, mm. right? Literally all white kids. Somebody I went to school with, their parent or their grandparents invented the machine that you swipe your credit card for and 
that was real crazy to me because I was like, literally every time somebody's swiping a credit card, <laughs> you have a trademark and you are making money. Yeah. Wow. That's wealth. <laughs> that that's wealth. That's generational wealth, right? And that was something that that I didn't I didn't experience before. Even growing up in Jamaica for the years, I thought we were pretty pretty well off. And then coming here and being on like food stamps initially and, you know, really struggling, really grinding, just two different experiences. But when I got there and people that I went to school with, you know, uh, senior year, everybody was excited to drive a car. I didn't want to drive a car because kids had like 745s and I had like a 93 Camry, oh, yeah. right? You know, <laughs> so it's like you're not really competing with the 745 that's not yeah. even out yet Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you're coming in with literally a hoopty. <laughs> I can relate because I was fortunate enough to go to a boarding school mm. when I was 14. I went from the inner city, Dorchester Epiphany School and got into a boarding school and I went there and it was like, Right. Don't say dude to me. The word dude used to like <laughs> it was the first time I had been around white people. Yes. And someone saying dude, I would just like be like, yo, don't say that. That's like yeah. corny. But then there were people driving seven four like you said, exactly, like brand new cars, Porsche, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the top car was at the time. I think uh I remember the Lincoln Navigators being a thing in the early two thousands and like I mean, I was exposed to this life yeah. in high school that I had no idea what it was. Me too. Um and so I can relate to that. So that was high school you went to, to Catholic school? I went to high school. I went to Catholic school grade 10 onward. Um, okay. You know, I was, in, I was in my public school, which I think was a good public school. Shout out to Uniondale. Like we um, had band, the arts, we excelled in sports, track. Um, academics were pretty good as well. The, the thing, and I think one of the things that led me into education was if you weren't essentially on one track or one pathway, your probability of being successful was incredibly limited. Um, and, and for me, I happened to be one of those kids who was on that pathway. But I think what my mother recognized by the end of my ninth grade year is even though I was still on that pathway, uh, Uniondale by and large wasn't doing right by its black boys. Um, so there were signs that she saw that I wasn't quite aware of that she was like, we have to get you out of here yeah. before um, before you become a statistic. Um, and I, I say it all the time. I went to school with kids who were doctors and I went to school with kids who are doing life in jail for, yeah. for crimes. Right. So I always, always think about that and wonder, you know, what was the moment that made me shift? Right. Or made me be able to go on this path and some of my friends go on a different path. Um, and it's something that I think about pretty much daily. Wow. You put that so well because my mom, like you just made me realize that it's the mother's intuition. They see it before you see it. Yeah. I have an older brother who did time his brother, like he's, he's going the completely different direction than I am. And the reason why I ended up in the school, the epiphany school, which was a eight in the morning to eight at night, program that then introduced me to boarding school was that my mom, you know, we were in Dorchester. My mom was like, you are not going to become a, a statistic like the rest of the kids on the block mm -hmm. who I see still to this day because I live in the same house that I was born in. Yeah. Um, the guy, like the dude I used to look up to, he rides his bike up and down the same. street. Oh, and he's man. drunk all the time. And yep. he's like, he was the man though. Yeah. Like he was the guy I wanted to be. Absolutely. And I would hate my mom for taking me from those situations 
and not letting them come hang out with me in my house anymore and not letting and not let me go hang out with them and sending me away to boarding school like i hated that shit mm-hmm. but then i come out of my house every morning and i'm walking my dog and i'm holding my son's hand we're walking down the street the dude i wanted to be is drunk at 9 a.m right what up sid what up sid yeah same shit every day you know i i have a similar story um and this is a friend of mine still but it, it's really crazy to me i was um went home and i i haven't really been home a lot because when i go home i'm just like there's nothing here for me yeah. uh, quite honestly but i went home and uh this was at the at peak black lives matter before all of this stuff is going on now but like black lives matter was just really exploding and deray mekison uh had was on the phone with my sister oh wow and uh, my sister facetimed me um and i was talking to my mans from when i was like 12 13 year, years old mm-hmm. you know like kid from the sandbox my guy you know and I was talking to him it was something similar you know i smelled like marijuana on him uh he was riding his bike just the same it looked like the same bike that we used to ride with when we were kids right and i was like man like this is this is just crazy this is a moment that is going to stick in my head forever and my sister facetimes me and she's like talk to dere right and i'm just like look how crazy my world is yeah. right here i am i have one of the one of the architects of black lives matter on the phone and i'm i'm here with my my mans who you know isn't doing all that well is doing okay for himself and there's nothing wrong with the path that he chose you know i'm i'm still happy for him but like i just recognized in that time that i was in a different place and i had different privileges that were afforded to me mm. because of some of the choices that i made in ninth grade and that's what i tell my students right i tell them all the time i'm like it's really hard for for me to say this to you right now but a lot of your life is going to be determined by the decisions that you make right now and that's crazy cuz you're is. you're a child yeah you know you, but you're a black child you're a black child and you watch you watch kids just make uh some ill-advised decisions and you you're looking for them to have a mother like ours who's yeah. like yeah we got to get you out of here right but getting getting you out of here shouldn't be the answer right i think i think that that becomes for me that becomes the most problematic thing cuz what we should recognize is that this is a space that you should be able to grow and mm-hmm. accomplish things in and you know those numbers those those the likelihood of you doing that is really small right so if you're telling me like two kids from your school went to Dartmouth or Harvard or whatever like those aren't the numbers that I want right like I want I want it to be like every black child every latinx child that comes into this space is going to be successful right and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to Harvard or whatever mm-hmm. to, to achieve that right but you have to you have to be able to come out of this little hamster wheel that you know people are fine with us going back into because they think that for us it's about survival and i know you're not trying to survive i know <laughs> i'm not trying to survive right um it, it's never been about survival for me cuz yeah. i've been good at that my whole life you yeah. know survival we we played that game uh so now it's, it's like enough. it's my dna <laughs> yeah right it's like let's let's thrive let's thrive and it should all that's the only conversation that i want to have how do we let these children thrive how do we let our communities thrive not survive yeah everything you're saying it resonates 
and it two 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 points I'll make. I spent eighteen years of my life trying to get out of the hood. That was the way that my my world was picked. My world was painted, and the way that the narrative is like, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out the hood. You know, eighteen. I say eighteen because you know that was when I like went to college, I guess. But Absolutely. I was already out by fourteen. Yeah. Um, and then after going through college and going through corporate America for a couple of years and realizing like, oh wait a minute, it's not the hood that's the problem. It's the system and yeah. the way that we're taught and Absolutely. the way that it's set up for just a few of us to make it out. And since then, I've spent the rest of my time trying to figure out how do I bring all the experiences I have to the people who can benefit from it the most. And running has just been the latest example of what I'm doing with it. Mm-hmm. And that's one point. And the, the second point to what you were mentioning was like, black kids have this small window where they can make a mistake and change their whole lives. Yeah. It'd be like 16 to 20. If you make a bad decision, your life could be derailed, right? Mm-hmm. Like it could be, you know, 17, whatever it is, the, the age gap, but it's a small gap yeah. because if you don't stay in that school, find some way to either go to college or um, get into some type of uh, trade work, mm-hmm. like your life is derailing. Like you're not going to be excelling at the, at the same rate. So like, it's just, it's unfortunate that it's such, you can make that mistake and it's just it's very unfortunate yeah, no. <laughs> i can keep going but i just watched trial four on netflix and uh sean ellis uh the protagonist so uh, so i guess sad. you can call him that of the story you know he was in metco until ninth grade and then you know like it obviously doesn't go into that next four years when he went to uh, public schools here yeah right but something switched within that time and he could talk to it talk to you about it him coming back to his community being involved in in different things right seeing things that he wasn't seeing in the metco program and and yeah just just falling falling victim to the system um and and it is incredibly sad to know that that is that is the world that we live in and to now hear you know, this awakening that we are going through or experiencing. Um, but awakening for me is never has never been about like reading books and, and things of that nature, right? Like shout out to those of you who are doing that stuff, right? But for me, it is about, you know, what are you doing to help advance um, students of color, black people, uh, Latinx people, you know, indigenous people, what are you doing um, to build these communities, the queer community, what are you doing uh, to really enhance their experience and make sure that when you're 16 years old, you're getting an internship, you know? And for me, um, we, we talk about these internships, you know, now I'm almost demanding that they be paid um, because a student of mine isn't gonna wanna, is gonna pick Foot Locker over working at Vertex, right? Unfortunately, even though they want to be a doctor, et cetera, they're going to pick the footlocker, the shoes, whatever. And I'm like, what if I could get you $3,000 for the summer, right? Would you do it then? Now you get yeah. the experience and the money. Yeah. We'll go to footlocker. You just don't, I just don't want you to work there. Right, right. It's just a privilege and mm-hmm. something that, you know, like kids who come from a little bit more money can take the risk because not the risk, but they can take the the opportunity to mm-hmm. have an internship at Vertex versus the kid who has to kind of support him, himself, herself, family maybe, yep. um, and just kind of get by. Man, it's uh, so powerful. Yeah. Um, I want to I wanna get... Go ahead. You want to say something? No, let's talk about running, yeah, man. No, no. <laughs> I'm not about talking about running. <laughs> I know, it's more man. like let's, yeah, let's, let's chronicle... Let's... 
I mean, because we can go forever. Yeah, about absolutely. This. Um, and we've never really had a conversation about any of this, mm -hmm. um, but we're very like-minded. And so, and that's probably why we've connected recently. Ab absolutely, recently, right? man. Was track your, your sport? What was your sport? I mean, you're Jamaican now. It makes sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like, talk to me about, like, uh, sports as a growing up. So, I grew up with my mother, um, mostly my mother in Uniondale, um, my stepfather. I didn't really have experience or know that my stepfather was my stepfather until later in life. Um, but my father's a 6'4", 220-pound black man who looks like he birthed Usain Bolt. Wow. He ab actually birthed me, but like <laughs> if you saw him and Usain Bolt next to each other, you'd say, yeah, that's probably Usain Bolt's dad. It's not. So he was naturally a very gifted athlete. I think the story goes, you know, like close to Olympian type level. Uh, wow. So naturally for me, uh, sprinting uh, was, was a thing. Um, but my main focus as a kid was like basketball, football, baseball, because that's what everybody was around yeah. around me was doing. Uh, eventually, baseball took a back seat as well, and it became basketball and football, and then it just became ball is life, right? Um, right? But wasn't really putting in the work to make ball is life. Just was incredibly athletic and could jump very high. Um, but I recognized quickly that that wasn't taking me to where I wanted to be, but thankfully my mom insisted that academics were a thing. Uh, so track was a sport that I, I was involved with, uh, something that I did, did for fun, yeah. but never took it really seriously. Um, same, same goes for basketball. I think I took it seriously when I was better than everybody. Uh, and when I got to college, you know, I started doing intramurals, met a few folks who were on the track team and was just telling them about, you know, the times that I ran in high school or whatever. I want to hear these times. And they were like, <laughs> they're like, oh, man, you should probably come out and run uh, for Northeastern. Come come out and do it. You know, and I was like, yeah, you know, like 10, 8, 10, 700. Let's you know, go. Like, That's like, me right there. I was yeah. a 10, 8, 10, 7. <laughs> you know, just like, just like chilling, times. right? <laughs> just like really chilling, doing doing well. That's fast. <laughs> and, and they were like, yeah, that that's exactly what they said. Because I at that time, I was about 155 pounds too, yeah. right? So, you know, I think the, the thought was, man, we could make you really good. Yeah. And we need another sprinter at Northeastern. Uh, but I quickly started, you know, really thinking about it. I had a neighbor who was a freshman as well and was one of the fastest kids on the team. And he would talk to me. I was like, yeah, come out, come out. And I was thinking about it. And then I just remember having this experience where it wasn't this guy's fault, but he came to me and he was like, hey, John. And, uh, right. So he was calling me my neighbor and I was like, damn, man, like, I just, black dude. yeah, I just got here. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> I'm not I'm not about this, man. Like, this is, you know, and you that that's what I'm thinking in my head at that time yeah. as an 18 year old right? at 17. I wasn't even 18 yet as a 17 year old, like thinking in my head. But my response was like, man, <laughs> he's like, how was track practice? I was like, uh, you know, like. I wasn't there. And he's like, no, man, I saw you. And I was like, oh, that, that, didn't, that didn't get you. You didn't realize it, it wasn't me in that moment. So I, I think that was it for me. That was like one of the moments that soured uh, the experience. But like I said, I did intramurals. I did everything. And in football, it was just like, it was literally, 
send Gavin on a go route and uh, <laughs> just let him go Let's get it. Go. Right. Um, so I, I really, uh, I really came into my own. But running really became a thing for me when my roommate at the time uh, was started getting into it. He was trying to get more fit and yeah. like lose a couple pounds, et cetera. Uh, and then he got really serious. I remember my first race was on Mission Hill and everybody used to wear those like fly pumas, you know, like the the like little, I feel like they were, I want to say like European type pumas. You what know? year was this? Uh, like 2000, 2006, 2007, oh, yeah, no. like just like really these pumas had no soul, no nothing. Yeah. But I remember I was like, yo, if I'm going to go run a race, you know, I ran in high school. I know I need some really light shoes. And I put those on and I went and I ran. And when I finished the race, I remember some white woman just coming up to me and being like, you ran a 5K in those? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what do you mean? You know, it was just like, it was it was the wrong, wrong shoes. Yeah. Um, but I think that started my running journey. Because from there, you know, I would get up to like 20, 30 miles a week, oh, wow. uh, started meeting people in the community who were runners as well. And I didn't really have a plan. I would just go out, run and exercise. I love to exercise. I love to run. So I would just go and do that. It was just part of my every day. Uh, and then I met some folks who were training for things and I just went along for the ride, you know, training with them, but not really knowing what I was doing. Just like, all right, you want to go run on the track? Sure. You know, I could put down a 25, 200 any time and they're like trying to get 31, 32. Yeah. And I'm just like, because, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you're in you're in peak shape at that point. So I'm like 25, you know, just easy. Like, easy. Oh, six times. Sure. <laughs> let's go. You know, you found um, you found running at a at a good time because yeah. you weren't like trying to get back into it. You were like <laughs> in it. Yeah, exactly. I was I was in peak peak shape. Uh, so I remember going out and running a five k, maybe like my, my second one, but first one actually training, and I came out with some stupid time, right? Wow. Just like something that was absurd, uh, and people were just like, "Yeah, so you gotta like." run run <laughs> you got to come out and run now um and i just was doing it for fun it yeah. wasn't anything to it so yeah i mean that's how i started so the transition from track to distance was seamless for you or did you um it wasn't it was less fun initially right i would i would say i, I didn't want to go out and run four or five miles yeah. but Running four or five miles was cool when I was running with Zach and Ryan, um, you know, who were two of my friends and they would just like bring me along or, you know, the person that I was seeing at the time when she was like, yo, come on, run. I was like, OK, you know, whatever. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't seamless per se, but it wasn't bad. Right. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't what I felt maybe four or five years ago when I started to try to get back into it. Yeah. Um, but I think the difference when I first started versus when I was coming off of an, of an injury was when I was coming off of an injury, I knew what I was capable of. Okay. Right? Uh, when I first started, it was just like, oh, you just ran a 16-23 5K? And I was just like, that's your baseline. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. You know, like, is that good? And they're like, uh, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> right? 
that's very good. Look it up. Yeah. I don't know. You know, okay, that's cool. Um, so, you know, from 5K, I was doing mostly 5Ks, 5 milers, and then I worked my way up to 10K, which was a little harder for me to, to get a feel for because it, it was longer distance, yeah. right? And like you said, sprinting to longer distance, yeah. like that was when I just was, oh, man, I don't, I don't want to do these 10Ks. <laughs> but I think at that point in time, this was around 08, 09, you know, what I do remember is I would be at these races I wouldn't see not a single soul, <laughs> not a single, just looking, like just <laughs> searching, right? Not one, you know, and when you did see one, it was, Head <laughs> yeah, man, good? I had to like stop everything that, let's go, what's up, my guy, right? right, right, <laughs> right. Oh, hey, you know, like it was, it was one of those kind of things. Right. Uh, so I was really looking. I wouldn't say for my community at that time, but more for people who were like me, who were also doing it. And it was it was few and far between. I actually remember seeing you for the first time. Uh, wow. I do. Uh, absolutely. Because you were uh, with Nike at the time. Yep. And I remember going to one of the morning runs things. And I remember I knew Chris Batu, who was from Trinidad. And I saw him at like a BAA half marathon. And I was like, oh, man, this is a person of color. And like we're neck and neck right now. I got competition because I was like, you know, I just got to be number one. The first non-African to cross the finish line <laughs> has to be Gavin Smith. right? Like it was something like that. Chris was was really good. I remember that. So I was like, all right, now I got competition. And I talked to him and he was telling me he was going to these Nike runs. So I was like, all right, you know, let me let me check one out. And I remember I, not only did I see you, but I saw maybe like two other folks. Right. Yeah. Um, and I remember um, that was when I, I met Jordan Donnelly as well. Yes. Right. Like so I was seeing I was seeing a lot of folks and he was really fast yes. too, um, short distance fast. And I remember you also being short distance fast. And I was like, all right, man, man, maybe short distance, like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was like, yeah, maybe, that, maybe that this short, is, yeah. maybe this is it for me. Um, but you know, for me, I was, that was peak, peak running for me. Yeah. That was beginning running. This was me like discovering running. Yeah. Me. It was peak running for me. But <clears throat> what, what excited me about that moment was just being able to see, um, you that you were in the space and there's another dude i can't remember his Jarek. name Jarek. yeah you know Jarek was in the space and he was so personable yep. and like leading everything and i was like man you know i've been looking for this for like four or five years wow. um and, and it it hadn't existed so that was why you know even when i was hobbling like literally hobbling at this point in time i would be going to the nike runs even though my physical therapist was like, maybe you want to take it easy <laughs> on your hamstring. But it was because uh, I saw something there. That's dope, man. Nike was cool. I credit, obviously, Nike to getting me into distance running because, like, they just rolled out this huge program. Yeah. That, like, you know, I mean, for us, for me, I, I saw Jarek. It was a, it was a perfect time because I was, like, I was leaving corporate. At mm -hmm. the time, I was trying to create a music festival to create experiences for people of color and do like a black music festival in Boston, which is, you know, never happened. Yeah. But, um, and I found Jarek and I saw Jarek leading this thing. I was like, he's a black dude. Yeah, exactly. Distance running. Yep. I can beat these older folks. Yep. 
and then I get my ass kicked every time I went, <laughs> and I just kept coming. Yeah. Um. And and then the ben- the mental health, like just the mental health and like the feelings that running, yeah, that came with running was like what I wanted to like bring to to the rest of, you know, my community, our community. But um, but it's. I, I, I can see your pull for wanting that community and seeing it and being wanting to like be a part of it, even oh, yeah. when it hurt. <laughs> yeah, man. It was it was amazing. And like I said, I don't even think Jarek knows who I am, right? But you just, were always quiet. Like yeah. I remember seeing you, you were just like quiet. Yeah, and that that's who I am, man. I, I it's so weird to say this, but um I just have this mindset of just go, right? So when when I'm in that space, it's like competitive edge just comes on and I'm that's what I'm thinking about you know I've been going to the same gym for like 10 11 years and I've probably said hi to five people (laughs) okay okay. (laughs) yeah I just get in that space and I'm just like let's go um but it it still it still rang very it was real personal for me uh to to see that uh, and then to continue to see it grow, because even when I stopped going, you know, I, I went to November. There was November. There were so many different fitness experiences that were in Boston. There was November Project. Uh, you know, our, I, our, uh, our producer Capozzi, he's a uh, he's a leader for November Project. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it's crazy because I went to school with Brogan. Right. Okay. Um and, Northeastern, and, yeah, and B recognized me pretty early on because I think they were trying to recruit me for um, for crew as well, okay. right? Uh, and he's just like, "Yo, man, I've been seeing you run. It's like we do stadiums at um, November Project. Why don't you come out? I, I want somebody to crush it, you know." And I was like, "Crush it? What do you mean, crush <laughs> it?" And then I met all of these like you know, people that look like me because I'm not a typical looking runner. You know, I was like, I was at that point, I was probably six to 205, 210 pounds, but like pretty muscular. Cock D's. Yeah. And I saw, <laughs> and I saw B and I'm like, well, you're like, <laughs> if I'm pretty big, you're like huge. Right. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, yeah, let's go, man. Let's go. Come on out. And that was his mentality as well. Yeah. And like, you don't need to tell me twice. Yeah. <laughs> you just say, just say once. And I remember going and I met some just crazy dudes, some, you know, crazy, crazy folks, man. They were going up and down these Harvard stadiums like so fast and I was like, I love this, <laughs> right? The, I don't even know what this is, but I love it. Yeah, I, mean, I just, I just want to, want to do this. So I go once a month and try to race, uh, you know. But they were putting up crazy times. I think people were doing it in like sixteen minutes or something like that. And the first time I did it, he was like, you know, twenty-one. He's like, but you, yeah, man. But you got it. You got it. Come back. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I can't feel my entire body, but. Sure. So yeah, no, Rumbaj is crazy. They're yeah, crazy. I, they create really dope community, but they're crazy. Yeah, they're real, <laughs> real crazy. And I, I got involved with that. I got involved with um, so many other different communities that came out at the time. If it was fitness related, I was yep. doing it. But again, like I said, I was like the only. Um, yep. I remember there was another black dude in November Project that always showed up with a dog, right? Um, and uh, we, they were on, they were on Runners World came, and. 
you know, it's like, oh, there's two black dudes here, so Runner's World has to choose. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I ended up being in the shoot. Uh, right? Oh, it that's was, a competitive yeah, gap. Was, they got to shoot. There's only two of us, but they got to shoot. But, you know, like, my, my abs are pretty on point right now. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of that. And and at that point, I was, like I said, I was just out there for a good workout. And yeah. it was it was always a really dope workout. So I, I did that for a little while. I did Nike track club. Yep. I did, um, I did ran with forest Hills runners. Uh, and then I got hurt. Uh, when I got hurt, uh, I had just finished a marathon. You know, I was pacing a lot of people. Yeah. I was helping people run. And, um, just because it was fun, I was coaching and helping people run. So I remember I was running, helping somebody get to their personal best yeah. uh, at the BAA half. And she wanted to do a 125 or something like that. So I was just, yeah, I was just running the 125 with her, just talking trash to everybody. Cause she was 125. She was like one of the first girls to cross, right? Woman to cross. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was a few BAA runners. I'm just like, yo, she's going to beat you. Oh, wow. I was like, Jen. Jen, come on, you know, I just really running my mouth and she was holding it down and I was just cruising. Right. I didn't realize how good of shape I was in. I was just cruising. And then we get to the finish line. I'm like, Jen, how you doing? Man? You did. You did well. She got like 125, 40 or something. Did well. She's like, I can't breathe. I was like, oh, man, I didn't realize it was, it was that crazy. Um, but, you know, that was the kind of shape that I was in where I was like casually running 125s and I ran. Talking smack. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, that that just feels really good yeah. at like 205 pounds at that, you yeah. know, with somebody who's most people there were just like really tiny. And so that that was really good feeling. But then I went and I ran Marine Corps Marathon a couple of weeks later, and I was on pace to do something crazy too, like two forty eight, two forty nine, and got a little hurt. Um, finished up, finished up around three twelve. Didn't stop, but that was that was the beginning of the end. My uh, my Achilles, I tore it after that. Oh. and then you know, for me, it was like it wasn't hard to come back. But it was hard to run again at that level competitively. I, I didn't even, for me, like I said to you, it was either go hard or not at all. Yeah. And so I, for a while, I just chose to not at all, not at all right? Uh, yeah, so that was... That's real. How many marathons have you run? Uh, just three. Okay. What's yeah. your best? Uh, the three, the three twelve is my best personally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I did um, first one. I did was running with the person that I was seeing at the time, mm -hmm. and I say that that was in one of those places where I wasn't training, she was training, yeah. <laughs> and I was just kind of running. Yeah. All right. Um, and then when I got to the marathon, Philly marathon, I learned that after about mile thirteen, yeah. that I was just running and she was training and. I needed to be training if I was going to go run a marathon because yeah. I was, again, that was one of those places where I was cruising. And then by like 15, 16, it's like I hate it here. Yeah. I absolutely hate it here. Did you run with her the whole time? Uh, no, I was ahead of her, okay. right? Because what what I learned in that moment, right, in reflection was I was training to run her race, uh, but I was faster than her. Yeah. So when I went out to run a faster race, I should have never done that because yeah. I didn't train for that. 
<sighs> but it's you know like that that's running right that's real what humbly, you learn real quick oh, humbly, yeah. real quick. oh man you know you're walking with your hands on your knees you're making up injuries everything was wrong with me yeah. that day <laughs> um, yeah no i i hear that <laughs> man so um so you were hurt you were injured around what year was this uh, this was probably like 2014, 2015. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then when I started Pioneers, you came around a couple of times. Yeah. Supporting, hype. Oh, yeah. I was I was so hype, man. It was what I had been looking for in 2009. Yeah. Right. Wow. It was, Which you know, is like, was at that point, eight years had passed. Yeah. I was hyping it up to everybody you anybody <laughs> i knew who ran who was a person of color i think you sent I'd jason seen. to us yeah man yeah, I, yeah. anybody like literally yo you interested in running i know a dude sid he's got a great club going on and you know dorchester it's it's great man you know like i hadn't even been at that point yeah. yet but i was just hyping it because i wanted everybody to be there and then when i went to the first one i was like yeah yeah <laughs> this is it pioneers has been great I think when we first started, it was novel. It was something new. It was like novelty. Yeah. And people were like, "Oh shit!" Like I'm gonna go run. But then real quick, people realize like, "Oh, this is running." Yes. I don't know about this. <laughs> and then it gets cold, and it's like, "Yeah, it's cold." Mm-hmm. I don't know about this. Yeah. So we struggle. We still continue to struggle to, to to like attract and maintain people of color. Yeah. And I think we have to start sooner. We have to start like with the kids. We have to start with the youth because oh. like trying to find people of color who are runners in Boston, I would say like New York, LA, DC, those are transit cities. Yeah. People move there. They're looking for community. Yeah. They want to go find a run team. In Boston, people live here. Yeah. They ain't looking for community. Exactly. You're absolutely And right. running is not a thing that they're coming out to do. Mm-hmm. So like we struggling. I mean, we, we're growing and in the summers we, we, we do pretty well in terms of like how well balanced it is in terms of people of color and white people. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it gets colder, it goes like Loses 75, it. 85% yeah. white, which is fine. Like we welcome mm-hmm. everyone. But like I, it, I feel like I'm not doing what the mission is. How do, how do you keep? How do you keep? It's hard. Uh, my wife always reminds me, you know, at least, or you're doing the work because you're not, you're, you're created for and by people of color. Mm-hmm. And they know that this is a, a comfortable space that's welcoming to them. You're not like a running club that is trying to attract them over, but they're coming and it's like, oh, what is this? Like, yep. We're created for people of color, which makes me feel better. But I still, I feel like it's so hard to get and reach the people and keep the people that we want to service. I think there's a community now, a fitness community now. Because, yeah. right, that's what I was talking about. When I was going to all of these fitness events, and there were a lot, right, um, you know, there wasn't a Lizzie Rocks. There wasn't, right, there wasn't, um, uh, what's a Bayo? There wasn't, right, there weren't those folks, right? It was was literally just me. Um, And I remember the only places that I've consistently seen black people on runs is when I went to Runyon Canyon in L.A., right, and Chicago. Yeah. In Chicago, it was cold, but I must have seen like 10 black people that one day, right? So when you're talking about what you're doing, right, I think it's in some ways it's bigger than you, yeah. right? It, it's more about Boston, right? Because it, it's the, the elephant in the room when we talk about Boston, right? Like white, black people say Boston is racist, right? So no, we know. Uh, it's yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So... You know, I think a lot of people who come here who might be willing to be part of that community are hesitant 
mm-hmm. um, are hesitant. And I think we'll become less hesitant because there are now faces to that community. Yeah. The problem then becomes, do they stay? Yeah. Right. So if I'm not mistaken, I would say a lot of pioneers right now are Boston homegrown mm-hmm. folks. Right. Mm-hmm. And now I would say, like, well, how's the push to get folks who aren't yeah. from the community? Right. And then not only get them, but get them to stay here. Yeah. Right? Like stay in Boston. Yeah, period. stay in Boston. Forget exactly. running for Pioneer, right, but yeah. stay, stay in Boston, period. Right. Yeah. Because then I feel like they would continue to build that community. And what I've continued to see in my, I think this is my 16th year here, is we lose a lot of really good, smart people um, who are about that life to other cities because they're like, nah, Boston is not about yeah. that life. Yeah. I was one of those people who was going to leave Boston, but I love Boston <laughs> too much. I love, I love trying to create for my people. Yeah, no. Um, and my family's there and all. But, but yeah, that's, a, that's something that, um, that we're still dealing with. So when, uh, when did you start running with Tracksmith? Because I um, love the work that you're doing with Tracksmith. You wrote an article yeah. about Bob Aubrey. That was very powerful. Like I said, we, we began the show talking about how you brought them to come shoot you in Dorchester. Yeah. Um, so talk about like how you got started with them and, and kind of like the work that you do behind the scenes and then also with Lululemon. Okay, perfect, man. I think Tracksmith, um, you know, I had known about them for, for some time and it was when I first got back into running. I was looking for, again, a faster crew. Yeah. Um, I could go out and I could run whatever by myself, but I I wasn't finding these fast crews or, you know, people who made me feel competitive again. Mm. So I remember they would do the, these half on halves and I hadn't run a half in like a really long time, but, you know, you go out there. And I remember going out there and dudes were moving. <laughs> they were going. I was like, yo, <laughs> I need to stop. Mile five or six, like whatever is going on here is not the business, right? Um, and I remember that pretty, pretty well. But for me, it was like, all right, you got to work your way up to being able to run with them. Uh, so I, I just followed them pretty, pretty frequently on social media, started building conversations with some of the folks, learning about some of the folks who were running and, um, you know, then they opened the Newberry store. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they opened the Newberry store, I, I'd go, uh, but it was mainly my roommate who was really interested. Uh, we're both pretty quiet people, so we would go to some of their little runs, but wouldn't really make community. Uh, and then I started going to their track house runs when they when they started that program. And naturally, you know, I guess when when people ask me to speak, I have no problem doing it. Uh, so, you know, they had these these runs and they were looking for pacers. They were looking for people to, to lead certain paces. And I just started leading uh, and people just gravitated to me, to be honest, yeah. uh, which I didn't really expect. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just I mean, like, you are a leader. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, listen, you know, I, I want to you want me to hold the 730 fine or a seven minute fine. Like I do that. But I think people started gravitating to the conversation or how fun I made that 10 mile run or whatever. So they, I kept on doing it, right? And that's how I became a part of the community. Uh, those conversations with that group of 15 to 20 runners, I always had the biggest group, 
right? right? Like the 15 to 20, 25 to 30 runners, right? I think like you, you said, like people start to see stuff in you and I limit that to my work. I think I've always tried to distinguish between being a runner, right? And a principal or a teacher, right? Yeah. Cause those are two separate spaces. And um, part of the Lululemon thing was like, honestly, it was really hard for me to say that I'm not a runner anymore, right? So why would an organization want me to be an ambassador if I don't do anything related to health and wellness, right? And what I recognize now uh, through conversation reflection and a lot of the things that we do as ambassadors is that I do all of those things. I'm still very much a runner, right? Like my running personality is not different than the other personalities. I, I need to stop separating them and recognize that that is just a part of all of these things make up who I am, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's powerful. So I think Tracksmith picked up on that pretty quickly and we were like, we need this guy around, right? And never like formally said it, they always welcome me, always ask me to do things with them. All of these major events started happening and I saw the work that they were doing and I just started reaching out at, at the higher level, you know, speaking to, to folks who were higher ups in the organization, but that was easy to do because whenever I went to runs, you know, Matt was there. Uh, it wasn't like he wasn't, it wasn't easy to get get a hold of or yeah. lee was there or drew was there right like they were easy to get a hold of so i remember i just emailed matt just directly like i see you're doing some stuff and quite quite honestly i want to be a part of it mm -hmm. right and um i don't want you to dictate and that was never you know matt matt never suggested that we do that right but it wasn't like i don't want you to dictate um but here's what i here's what i think i could do right mm -hmm. and here's how i want to do it and there wasn't a question it wasn't like oh i don't really think that's a good idea it was like all right i'm here uh so that from that came the ahmaud arbery piece which was like there was just a lot on my mind man it was it was a time where you know, it was, it was bigger than running, right? But then again, like me dealing with my running personality, it was like running means a lot to me. Yeah. And running clearly meant a lot to this black man as well in the same ways that it meant a lot, means a lot to me, right? He's probably going out and getting that mental health stuff, right? The, the stimula stimulations that we get from it, clearing your mind, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And to be in the middle of what's supposed to be really peaceful and be literally hunted I was like, man, no, this hits too hard, really hits too hard. And I don't want to see like, you know, a lot of folks were doing the run for mod hashtag or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But again, I always think about how are we actionable, right? Like, um, and the, the hashtag wasn't enough for me. I was like, I just, I need people to understand that. Right. I, I need people to understand that this is my every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and these are things that are always in the back of our heads, right? Like we're never really thinking about it. It's never at the forefront because if it is, right, you live your life in complete fear and anguish. But like I said, we're trying to thrive. So for me, I wanted people to understand like, yo, this is, this is real. 
so I, I wrote the piece uh, and got some some big a lot of folk reached out to me about it. You know, a lot of people were were talking about what it meant to them and they were happy that I spoke up. Uh, and I just continued to have conversations with creatives, uh, you know, and, and I was just happy again to have a seat at that table. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history. You've, you've seen sort of the work that I've been able to do with them, but always, always on my terms. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure uh, that it's always on my terms. I think it's important that it's always on your terms because the par- part of the reason and the problem that we that leads us to no representation, no outreach, no active trying to bring people of color into communities of brand communities is that there aren't people that look like you and me at those decision-making tables on our own terms. Yeah. Where they're not at the decision-making level, where like we may be, you know, best, you know, working for the brand, but like never in our full selves. Yeah. And so the only way things change is if we're there in our full selves making our own decisions because we're waking up. You're waking up in Roxbury. I'm waking up in Dorchester. Those are majority people of color communities and we live and experience that every day. And then if you go to work for these brands, that's how you bring yourself to work and that's how you bring those experiences. But if, you know, if they're hiring you to do some consulting work or like elevate you a little bit and like post more people on their social, it's like, all right, cool. Bandage. Mm-hmm. But then how are you going to sustain this? Yep. Absolutely. How are you going to grow this? How are you going to create with us in mind? My approach is I ain't fucking with the big brands. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> because they're not, they're never going to be able to do it. Absolutely. And we want to thrive. Yeah. It's not about equality. It's mm-hmm. about equity. Yep. We need to own yeah. and we need to, um, and we need to drive our own awareness and, you know, I mean, obviously, we do need the big brands. Yeah, we, um, we need the support. We need everything. Uh, but their support needs to look a little different. It needs to. It, it, it's not the, the 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 old way. It's it's mm-hmm. like, all right, what do you need? And here, give. I'm going to give you resources to go do what you need. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I I completely I get a agree. Crazy about that. No, I mean, come on, really talk about it. <laughs> you know, I um, I think about it every day and. My work experience, you know, talking about corporate America, I work in the public sector and I've been fortunate enough to move up the ranks pretty quickly uh, in what I do, not because I'm black, but because I'm damn good at what I do. Exactly. Right. Um, but I oftentimes I have to explain that to people. Um, you know, I have to conform to things or hold things back and bite my tongue in spaces that I'm supporting young men, women, children who look like me, who come from similar experiences to me and have the same experience and know the struggle, right? And I have to listen to folks dictate the narrative in a way that I just know is wrong, right? Or oppressive or savioristic Hmm, in nature, right? That's a huge part of it is savioristic. Right? And... And figure out, right, we talk about biting tongue, but a huge part of survival, right, and I say, again, never want to survive. A huge part of survival for me in my world is being able to recognize something is wrong, hold back, 
and figure out how to have that conversation with a person that I really don't want to have that conversation with, right? Because it's about enlightening them. And really for me, it is not about enlightening them, right? I can do this once or twice, but if this is your, if this is who you are, right? If this is your personality, then I don't want you in this space, right? And for me, when I was a teacher, I was angry, right? I was angry with a lot of, a lot of folks because I just thought they were bad for children. So what did I do? I moved my way up there and there are a lot of great teachers too. Yeah. I know you've had a lot of great teachers. I've had a lot of great teachers. I've worked with a lot of great, well-meaning, well-intended teachers. But you know, for me, right, working your way up is, so now you can control who's in and out the door a little bit more. And then you recognize, man, you're deep in the matrix and the game is nothing like you thought it would be. Right. So instead of doing the thing that I want to do, how I want to do it, right, you recognize that there's a lot of give and take and you're doing most of the the giving and everybody's taking uh, and, and that becomes frustrating. So even for me, it's like I want my own school, too. I want that LeBron joint. How do I get that LeBron joint? Like, really, uh, everything that he has, not you know, not just the piece, not small pieces, not my own school, but like all of those resources that he was able to do, public school, everything, right? Yeah. That is truly a powerful model. People don't recognize, they don't give him enough flowers for what he was really able to do for that community because he literally went in and was like, this is the system. And he made, people say we need school reform and people went away from that. You know, like Bettina Love is like, no, we need to just destroy and rebuild, right? He went in and he destroyed and rebuilt completely, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I'm curious to see the case studies on that school in five, 10 years and see the amount of black and brown joy that's going on in that space and like how he's actually cultivating minds in that space because, you know, like, again, right? That's what I think the model needs to be. The, the system that I work in is incredibly messed up and it's going to continue to be incredibly messed up until we start actively moving to, to change it and dismantle it. And I don't see any active movement to change and dismantle it. Yeah. I, school is a thing that I'm happy not to be a part of. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my brother, he went to Harvard. He got his um, school leadership. He's dealing with it. Uh, his wife teaches my wife was in schools for a bit, so I'm happy I'm not a part of it. Um, I heard something interesting recently where um, they were saying, or someone was saying, um, school, the school, the reform right now are going, are led by people who it worked for, mm -hmm. not, not by people it didn't work Absolutely. for. Absolutely. So where is that balance and how are you going to make it work for everyone if you're just going to use the people who it worked for? And those people that it worked for are people who typically have a little bit more privilege. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of it. And the other part of it is like school reform is like, it's the big rich tech owners, you know, yeah. tech company owners, or like just rich people mm -hmm. who kind of putting their money and time behind Right into reform. it. Yeah, um, man. So that, that, I mean, until that changes, I mean. Apply that to any industry. Apply that to any yes. governmental yeah. system, right? They're talking about the same thing for Congress now, right? Like, why are we um, thinking about these, you know, these runoffs that we're going to have, right? Why are we investing in Georgia and so on, right? Because we recognize why is Stacey Abrams so, so, you know, like well respected right now? It's because people recognize, right? Like, all of these systems. That's true about. Yeah. 
I happen to be, have really been successful in school, but I recognize that it's messed up, right? Yeah. Like I recognize, and this is what I tell all of my students, they just don't hear it because they're 14, 15 years old. It's right. a game, Instagram, man. Instagram. Yeah, it's just everything. a game. School is just a game. School's a game. Life's a game. <laughs> right? It's, a game. it's yeah. just a, it's just, it's a, it's they're a so very distracted. intricate game though, yeah. right? It's chess. Yeah. You're playing chess. If you're not playing chess on this board, right? Like, and, and some of our kids weren't taught to play chess. They, yeah. they were taught to play checkers really easily, but they have the skills. They have the capacity, right? So what I need teachers to do, what I need people to do, what I need community to do is to teach them how to play chess, right? Teach them how to be, play chess and be better than you at it, right? Yeah. And I think that's the piece that is really hard, right? Like nobody wants somebody to be better than them. I want all the kids to be better than me. I want them to be better than you. I want them Absolutely. To be, right? I want them to be great. Right. That's refreshing. Uh, not that, you know, it's refreshing to hear it. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you're talking about and what you're working on, the reason why I wanted to have you was to amplify it. Like I mm -hmm. see it in so many different ways in your writing for Tracksmith, in your video for Tracksmith, in the way you brought me in and said, hey, talk to Matt. Mm -hmm. Like we need to have these conversations. Just inspiring. It mm -hmm. really is. Um, and I appreciate you pulling up to the hood relay, <laughs> doing your thing and just being like a part of like the community, even, even though you're not, you can't always be there. It's yeah. like, you're always there. So I'm, I'm always watching for yeah. sure. And you know, I want to say you are doing the most awesome thing <laughs> right now. You know, same with, I've never been to hood fit or trill fit, right? Like I've never been to, you know, hood fit too. Like I've, I do their races, but I've never been to trill fit. But I just see the communities that are coming from now. There's like trailblazers, right? Yeah. Like I just see the communities that are coming from these spaces. And like, I just, I love it. Right. And I know you are one of the masterminds behind all of it. And, and that is just great. It's a lot of with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I know you're, you're in uncharted territories. You're doing a lot of things that just haven't been done before yeah. for the city. Uh, so, you know, power to you as well. And, Thank you, you know, you have you have all my support. Uh, I, I just want you to know that, like, for real, for real. I appreciate that. It's mm -hmm. very hard. And the way you put it, uncharted, uncharted territory is correct. Mm -hmm. um, and just trying to make it, you know, make it work and make it a thing. And still struggling to actually make it a thing for people of color. You know, mm -hmm. like I might be creating, but like, how do I bring those folks with me and keep them? Like, we need to be creating this wellness kind of a community and across the spectrum have people involved and, and wanted to be a part of it. So I'm happy to play my, my small role and, and try to bring and elevate voices and, um, and keep doing it. So thank you. You, you need for you, you need like, you need folks like everybody. I mean, you need folks like me to just be like, all right, man, this guy's doing some really great work, yeah. you know, um, because that helps you build and build and continue. And I think that's where, we miss out a lot of times, right? Yeah. I'm just always trying to get people to to get there, right? To to get at that table, whether that's a table with Nike or with uh, Lululemon or uh, Tracksmith, whatever, yeah. right? Like anybody I have access to, um, my community has access yeah. to. That's very well. true. I know because I know from experience. This mm -hmm. is true. <laughs> um, cool, man. So what do you see? I guess we'll end on what do you see the next three to four years for you? Fitness related, school related, life related. What do you What do you see? What do you see? I think for the first time, that's a great question, right? Like I recognize, like I said, that 
the two are connected for me. Yeah. I've been, fitness has been a huge part of my life since I can remember. Um, and it's only gotten bigger, but I try to like downsize that part of me. And I think it's more than fitness, right? It's, it's health in general, yep. you know, health, healthy eating, healthy living, taking care of yourself, mental health, right? That's been a huge part of, of me um, because the work is hard and, you know, I'm always on go. But, you know, like those are spaces where I, I can I can release in really meaningful ways. So being able to bring that to my community, um, you know, has been has meant a lot to me. And like you said, for me, it's about getting it into the community at an early age. It's not about getting it into the community when folks are in their 20s or whatever. Like I want my kids at 14 to know about all of these different things and different opportunities as well. You know, so I'm I'm talking to big brands, I'm talking to little brands, I'm talking to everybody and trying to really get my fifteen and sixteen year olds internships. Yeah. Uh trying paid to, internships. Yeah, right. And and making that clear for, for real. And and if it, if you can't pay, right, that's fine. If you're a small brand and you can't pay, somebody else is going to, right? Like I, I want it to be like that, right? That for me, that's the real, that's the real power. That's the real giving in the, these conversations that we're having. But I'm really just trying to learn and grow, man. I, I really want to learn enough. I'm an assistant principal now. I want to learn enough to lead my own school, um, maybe eventually lead my own district and really thinking about what that looks like. I want to do something that hasn't been done before. I, I say that really and truly. Um, you know, I think many years ago, the charter school model was that model that shook up the education community and made it into, made, made it real a little bit, right? Because charters were taking money from the public schools, mm -hmm. right? So public schools had to get their act together. And, you know, I think we're kind of at this place where it's it's a standstill again, at least here in Boston. So I want to really think about, you know, how can we start moving the needle again? How can we get people to, to be afraid? And I don't mean I don't mean people of color. Um, I mean, like white folks, to be quite frank, you know, like white liberals who are in the teaching field. How can we get them afraid to not work, right, but to like really start thinking about, thinking outside of the box about what education can look like and, and to really build it in meaningful ways. But the same way you're trying to attract, you know, runners of color into uh, running, I'm trying to attract teachers of color. You know, I want, I want one day, I want a blickety black school, <laughs> you know, when black and brown kids doing hella black things you know like that learning black history you know, like, exactly man that's that's when i'm at my best when i am interacting with students when i'm interacting with adults of color i can be me yeah right and i think there's so much power in being me and not having that misinterpreted right like i i want to I want to really change the game in that way. Um, and there are people who've done it before. So it's just about researching what they've done, what's made them successful and doing it better. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a quick review. This helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it with them. 
That wraps up today's show. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next episode.